The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. You know, so last week I pointed out how in, in Ephesians 2, Paul gives us this powerful picture of how the cross not only reconciles us with God vertically, but it also horizontally reconciles us with one another. And I just want to read a few verses out of that passage that we looked at uh, last week in verses 14 to 18 of Ephesians 2. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And so as I mentioned in that last message, these Jews and Gentiles were in this active state of hatred toward one another, what Paul calls this dividing wall of hostility. But through the cross, that barrier was destroyed and creating for himself one new humanity out of the two, meaning that regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of what race you are, you all have access to the salvation that God offers us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, the cross becomes the great equalizer of humanity. All of us are in need of his grace and mercy. And so in last week's message, I invited you to reflect, what are the implications of that truth in your life personally? How has the gospel transformed your view of others? Do you see them through this lens of God's love and grace? And on the darker side, what might be some of the biases, some of the stereotypes and judgments that you may hold in your heart against those who are different than you? You know, race relations in America, I have to say, are probably as bad as I have ever seen it in this country, in my lifetime anyway. Since the Ferguson riots in 2014, the tension and the anger regarding race relations seems to only grow every year. And it seems like hardly any one of us is really talking with each other anymore. We just sort of shout at each other. And it seems like all sense of meaningful and constructive dialogue has fallen apart. And it's been accusations made one group to the other. And it feels to me as I look on social media that actually everyone feels misunderstood. Everyone feels misrepresented and, and everyone feels victimized. And uh, seeking justice in this highly charged atmosphere introduces its own set of challenges, doesn't it? Miroslav Volv, uh, a theologian who actually went through a lot in his own life, in Eastern Europe with the uh, things that happened with ethnic cleansing and things like that in Bosnia, uh, wrote in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, the principle cannot be denied 
The fiercer the struggle against the injustice you suffer, the blinder you will be to the injustice you inflict. We tend to translate the presumed wrongness of our enemies into an unfaltering conviction of our own rightness. Neither revenge nor reparations can redress old injustices without creating new ones. The injustices of the dead keep recreating and reinforcing unjust asymmetries and differences among the living. And the injustices of the living offer an unjust world as a home for the yet unborn. If you want justice and nothing but justice, you will inevitably get injustice. Now, I know that's kind of a dense quote and it may be hard to understand, but let me sort of unpack what Wolf is saying. He is saying, if your only goal is to right past wrongs, no matter how legitimate they may be, and basically just trying to balance the scales of justice by punishing the oppressors, then he says, what you will in essence do is create an entirely new generation of the oppressed who will then think, when is it our turn to get even at those who have oppressed us? And so the cycle will continue with each generation seeking payback for the oppression that they experienced in their generation. And so, you know, you kind of look at the chaos of everyone shouting at each other about who feels wronged, who deserves what right now in this country. And true reconciliation does require justice, but it is important that we understand the full picture of justice from the biblical perspective. And as I pointed out in the first two messages, justice is more than retribution. God's justice is motivated by love that also seeks mercy and forgiveness. This is the only kind of justice that has the true power to bring healing and reconciliation. Wolf also writes, there is a profound injustice about the God of the biblical traditions. It is called grace. Grace. Through the story of the prodigal son, Jesus spotlights our sense of injustice when confronted with God's grace. You know, when the older brother comes home after a long day's work in the fields of his father, he comes home to the sound of a party happening, and he realizes that his younger brother has come home, and his father has freely received him in his mercy. And rather than joining in the father's joy, the older brother is scandalized by it, by this lavish display of his father's mercy. And to this older brother, he says, this is a great injustice that has happened to me this day. Luke chapter 15, 28 to 30, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Can you feel the sense of injustice that the older brother has toward the mercy 
that his father shows to the younger son. You know, if you think about it, Jesus did not need to include this older brother in this story. If all he wanted to tell was a story about God's mercy towards sinners. But including this older brother in this story, Jesus shows that justice and mercy not only affects our relationship with God, but it has profound implications about our relationship with one another. And there is a legitimate side of justice that cries out for fairness, to have wrongs righted. But without a restoring aspect to justice that seeks mercy and forgiveness, true reconciliation cannot ever take place in our world. You know, once all these Black Lives Matter protests and marches die down, the nation has to face the more difficult questions of what's next? How do we heal as a nation from all of this? And as I said last week, policy changes are necessary, but ultimately they are not enough. The cross of Christ gives us the ultimate hope for reconciliation with one another. As we receive God's mercy and love, we can offer that same mercy and love to others. This is why I believe the witness of the church is so vital in these difficult times. That in the chaos of all of these voices that are shouting at one another on the news and in social media, we need to be a presence in the message that we declare about racial reconciliation. In verses 19 to 22 of Ephesians 2, it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So what... Paul is saying is that through the church, God is making for himself a new temple where he dwells among his people. And he says it's a new family that is made up of people that once hated each other. But they are now united by this cross of Jesus. In Ephesians 3, Paul talks about the centrality of the church in God's unfolding plan of salvation. In Ephesians 3, 6-10, it says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone that what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God, who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says that God has put his full wisdom on display through the church. In other words, we cannot understand the fullness of God's plans of salvation just by looking at individual lives that are saved. Those are maybe wonderful and powerful testimonies of salvation. But just hearing those individual stories 
doesn't tell the true gospel story. It's only when you look at the church, the community of God's people coming together in their saved state as a family that we see the full picture of what God is doing in our world. And central to that picture is the destroying of barriers that once separated us, bringing about a new one single humanity under Christ. And in Ephesians 2 and 3, that emphasis was in the dividing barrier between Jew and Gentile. But elsewhere in his letters, Paul makes it clear that that destruction of barriers is far greater than the Jew-Gentile division. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 to 26, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 11 to 14, Paul says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So through these passages, the Bible makes it clear that it wasn't only the Jew-Gentile barrier that was torn down by the gospel, but all of the different aspects of our identity that we use to typically separate ourselves from one another. In other words, these old distinctions that previously used to define our identity must now take a back seat to the reality that we're all joined together under this salvation in Jesus. In other words, these categories once meant everything to us. In fact, we even used them as weapons to judge and diminish the dignity and the value of other people. But now, as fellow worshipers, our identity is rooted primarily in Christ, and therefore, all of those barriers have been torn down. Now, here's the thing Paul isn't naive about the challenges that this poses for the church. And that's why he calls Christians to clothe themselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And it's why he says, forgive each other as you bear grievances with one another. He anticipates the existence of conflict because, man, when you try to bring former enemies together, it's going to be some pretty rough going at times. And so he says, there is work for the church to do. And we see in the New Testament numerous examples of the struggles that even the early church had in living out this reality of a new community that is brought about by God's grace. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so here's this example of ethnic diversity resulting in ethnic division and bias. 
And so these Hellenistic Jews, it's interesting that it wasn't even about the Jew-Gentile division. But even among the Jews themselves, they were dividing themselves. And so that there were these Greek Jews, and then there were the real Hebrew Jews, the Jewish Jews, you know. And these Hebraic Jews were excluding the Hellenistic Jews from the distribution of food. And they were favoring their own people, their own kind. And so thankfully, the apostles understood how vital a situation this was. And they stepped in and they said, this cannot be. This cannot be. And they ensured that all the widows, regardless of their ethnicity, received an equal amount of food. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul recounts another example of the struggle to truly be one family under the cross. In Galatians 2, verse 11 to 14, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You know, in those days, Jews never shared a meal with Gentiles. And it's because the foods that the Gentiles ate, many of which were considered unclean by the Jews, and it would make them ceremonially unclean. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 11, it records the story where Peter has a vision of seeing all of these animals coming down from heaven, and a voice from heaven says, Peter, eat. And he is absolutely repulsed by this because it's all of the animals that the Old Testament law forbade him to eat. And the voice from heaven says, listen, Peter, what God, what Jesus has made clean, don't you dare declare unclean. Eat these animals. And so after that vision, Peter begins eating with Gentiles. But then this contingent comes from Jerusalem that believed that even as believers in Christ, you still needed to keep the Old Testament law. And so Peter is intimidated by this group, and he stops eating with Gentiles. And at one level, you kind of look at the story, and it seems like it's a pretty minor detail in everything that's going on in the early church, but it's kind of shocking, the harsh language that Paul uses to talk about Peter. He says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And then later he will call him publicly and say, you're a hypocrite. And so Paul rebukes Peter, his hypocrisy, and says to him, this is not just a cultural issue. He says, the reason why I'm coming at you with all guns blazing is because this is a gospel issue. By you doing this and stumbling so many others to suddenly pull away from fellowship from their fellow Gentile believers, you are violating the very essence of what Jesus died for to create this one new humanity through the cross of Christ. 
by caving in to the circumcision group and refusing to eat with these Gentiles. He says, you are violating something essential to what God is doing in our midst. Tim Keller comments on this in his commentary in Galatians and writes, racial pride must have entered into it. It has been drilled into Peter and all the Jews since their youth that Gentiles were unclean. While hiding beneath the facade of religious observance, Peter and other Jewish Christians were probably still feeling disdain for Christians from, quote, inferior national and racial backgrounds. Peter was allowing cultural differences to become more important than gospel unity. And you know, the truth is, these challenges are still with us today, aren't they? The tragedy is that where Christ has torn down barriers for us, we seem to erect new ones that divide us from one another. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, we must face the fact that in America, the church is still the most segregated major institution in America. At 11 on Sunday morning, when we stand and sing, and Christ has no east or west, we stand at the most segregated hour in this nation. This is tragic. Nobody of honesty can overlook this. And I'm, I'm telling you, the ethnic divisions that exist, not only in the world out there, but in the church of Jesus Christ, is not by accident. If you kind of know sort of how the history unfolded about the way the church grew in America, in many ways you could trace it back to what happened decades ago. There was this guy named Donald McGavran. He was a missionary kid who grew up in India. And he himself would later on in his adult life become a missionary. And this is what McGavran observed. He saw some churches in India that said, you know, the gospel breaks down these barriers, and so we must break down the barriers of the caste system. And so in these churches, they said, whether you are a high caste Brahmin or an untouchable, you are all one in Christ, and we must worship together in Christ. And what McGavran observed is that those churches did terribly. You're talking churches of like 10 people, 5 people, because the Indians just wouldn't do it. But then he saw other churches said, you know, let's just be realistic here about the situation in India. And let's just let each caste worship together by themselves because it'll be much easier that way. And the churches that catered to only one caste exploded. Hundreds, thousands of believers in those churches. And so this really sent a message to McGavran. And he said, yeah, you know what? When we force people to do this, the church languishes. And McGavran, to his credit, said this. We do need to work toward that unity, but that's a discipleship issue, not an evangelism issue. And so it says, here is this person that doesn't know Jesus, and he's a high-caste Brahmin. What motivation does he have, without being redeemed yet, to sit next to an untouchable? Why should we put an unnecessary barrier to coming to Christ by forcing him like this? So what he argued for is to plant churches 
targeting only specific people. And the truth is, that blueprint has become the model for church planting in America today. When you want to plant a church as a pastor, what you do is you decide who is going to be my target people group. And then you very intentionally go to those people. And because they already exist in social network with one another, the truth is that strategy works pretty amazingly well. And we've seen explosive church growth as a result of that for the last 50 to 70 years using that strategy. But I think the darker undercurrent of that strategy is that it's created an incredibly divided church where we all just seek out people who are just like us. And I think there is something about the gospel witness that is lost in that. Will the church in America be a voice for racial reconciliation? And if we are going to be a voice in the current debate about race, it has to begin with us. What are the ways in which I have personally excluded others that I am not comfortable with from my own fellowship, from my own world? Does the gospel compel me to reach out a hand of friendship and love to those who differ from me? Let me just close with this. Latasha Morrison, in her book, Be the Bridge, says this. Truth, unvarnished and unfiltered, is essential to the work of sanctification, freedom, and reconciliation. So what is truth in the context of racial reconciliation? The truth is that each ethnicity reflects a unique aspect of God's image. No one tribe or group of people can adequately display the fullness of God. The truth is that it takes every tribe, tongue, and nation to reflect the image of God in his fullness. The truth is that race is a social construct, one that has divided and set one group over the other from the earliest days of humanity. The Christian construct, though, dismantles this way of thinking and seeks to reunite us under a common banner of love and fellowship. This does not mean that we take a colorblind approach to community. Too many Christians believe that the ultimate goal should be seeing the world without color. But some even pretend to already be in this, quote, holy place. But Paul wasn't suggesting that aspects of our gender or race identity aren't important, that we should all meld together into one indistinguishable throng. In fact, Paul emphasized that unity can be found in diversity. We all have been given different gifts. We all are different parts of the same body. In the love of the family of God, we must become color-brave, color-caring, color-honoring, and not color-blind. We have to recognize the image of God in one another. We have to love despite and even because of our differences. And I think that is the challenge that lays before us, is how do we celebrate the diversity in our midst and how do we love those who are different than us? It has to begin first with an inner work of God in our hearts 
that enables us to dismantle those barriers that we erect in our own hearts against others. Let's pray. Um, as we close in prayer, um, I just want to invite you to a moment of personal reflection on everything that's been happening in America these last weeks, really these last few years. And also think about um, what your own journey has been of how race and ethnicity has factored into your own formation and your sense of identity. I, in the very first message in this brief series, shared with you some of my own hesitation to talk about race as an immigrant from Korea to America and how often whenever race was brought up, it was never a positive thing. It just hurt me usually, you know, it made me feel different, made me feel like, do I really belong? Um, and I know that many of you feel similarly, that it's just cleaner not to talk about race and ethnicity. But it seems like when we are too afraid to even address the issue, we turn our back on something very vital to the beauty of the church and what God calls us to. And even after everything I've said, I, I don't know, to me, honestly, I don't really believe that the goal is that we got to become more diverse and that as an end in of itself, it should be the goal of ICC. But I do wonder what it would mean for us to break down some of the barriers we erect to say, who might come into our fellowship that may feel uncomfortable, may feel like an outsider, may struggle to really belong? And what can I do because of Christ's love to me to extend that love to that person and show, man, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. And that connection means more to me than any other distinction that this world places on us that says that you're different than me. If the church of Jesus Christ could declare that witness loud and clear to the world, what a guiding light we would be in the midst of all of the hate and vitriol and all of the stuff that's being shouted at one another in the current conversation on race. After I give the benediction and closing prayer here, um, for those of you who do not wish to join in the congregational singing, you may exit after the benediction. If you're going to join us for fellowship, we want to encourage you to go out this door and just wait for us in the front lawn area there, and we'll have a fellowship time there. Uh, if you're just going to head home, you could just go out the back door and right to the parking lot. Uh, and so you can feel free to do that as soon as I finish the benediction. Otherwise, if you're going to stay for the closing worship, you can just stay, and then Pastor Peter will give you instructions about dismissal after that's over. Okay? Let's pray, and I'll also give the benediction. Father, do this work in our hearts, we ask of you, because we believe that your passion is to see all peoples that you've created and that you've loved united under this common banner of the mercy of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we confess before you that we struggle to really see that as our primary identity. There are so many ways that we accentuate what is different about us, all the ways that we alienate ourselves from one another and and all the ways that we even judge other people and stereotype them and maybe have certain biases against them. But Lord, let that sanctification work continue in our hearts of making us more like Christ. Lord, let the church that you have died for stand as a witness in our nation this day 
of showing the power of the gospel to break down these walls of hostility by the way that we love one another as fellow brothers and sisters of a single household purchased by your blood. Do that work in us, we pray. And now receive the benediction. May your identity be rooted in the unshakable knowledge that you are a child of God, loved and forgiven by him because of what Christ has done on the cross. May we as the church display the beauty of this reconciliation not only to God, but also with one another, loving and forgiving each other just as we have been loved and forgiven by God. Amen.